If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14 as we continue to walk through the book of Acts together. Perhaps some of you can identify with what we just, uh, those lyrics we saw, the song that was just saying about how at times in life we, we don't understand. Uh, there's answers we want that we don't receive and, and we are certainly called to bow our knee to Christ in those times. We also need to remember as believers, God has given us many answers. And so often we neglect to study His Word to find those answers He has given. And so at times, our lack of understanding isn't because He hasn't spoken. It's because we haven't listened. And so I pray that God will help you through the power of His Spirit to to listen to His Word today. uh, To learn from the answers He has given to us. That He might help you and I rightly understand the Gospel of Jesus. If you've been with us, you know that we're at the point in Acts where... Uh, The gospel is going to the nations. It's going throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out by the church there in Antioch uh, to talk to people who do not know about Jesus Christ, about the hope that they can find in Him. And so my prayer this Lord's Day is that you uh, would have that hope if you don't have it already. And if you do, that you would be encouraged in it as we look to God's Word together. And so we're going to look at Acts 14, uh, the first 20 verses this Lord's Day. And so out of reverence for this, the Word of God, if you are able, if you would stand together as I read it for us, remembering this is, this is God's Word to us. This is the answer He has given to us today. And so let's learn from it together. And this is what it says. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of that city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When a attempt was made by both the Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country and there they continued to preach the gospel now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet he was crippled from birth and had never walked he listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them. In past generations, He 
allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. You would pray with me. Father, we ask that you would do what, what no other power, no other thing can do. That you might open up our eyes to see your living word and to live according to it. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you may know that the largest denomination of our currency ever printed was during the Great Depression. It might seem like odd timing, but it was at a time when the government wanted to give security to the banks and the Federal Reserve, so they they came out with a, a note that they'd never issued before, a $100,000 bill. It was only issued for a very short time. In fact, they printed it for less than a month. It was never actually put in circulation. It was just used among banks in the Federal Reserve to, to give them some security in, in what they were transferring back and forth between the banks in, in hopes that they might have more confidence in the economy. Never put in circulation, but I want you to imagine this morning, what if I had a $100,000 bill today? And what if I not only had that $100,000 bill, but I had a a stack of what really looked like $100,000 bills? Now in that stack, uh, there would be a lot of counterfeits, uh, but there would be one true $100,000 bill. And if I were to take that stack and I were to pass out to everybody this morning one of those, And then in order to discern which one was real and which ones were fake, I was to put information up on the screen that very clearly helped you understand what does a true $100,000 bill look like. What would you do? Would you just assume yours wasn't real and throw it on the ground and walk out? (laughs) What I think most of you would do, what I would likely do, (laughs) is I'd take that bill and I'd start studying it. And I'd look up on that screen and I'd start studying it. And I would do everything I could to discern, is what I'm holding really worth $100,000? Or is it a counterfeit? You see, no, no matter how much you thought it was real, if it wasn't real, it would be worthless. So you could walk out of this building with a counterfeit $100,000 bill and you could make great plans for how you would spend it and what you would do with it, but you would find when you got to the bank and when someone examined it that what you had wasn't the real thing, that you had been fooled. Only that one person with the true $100,000 bill would have something of worth and of value. The others of us would simply have counterfeits. We would know the counterfeits if we studied the real thing. And the church of Jesus Christ today 
there are a lot of counterfeits. That there are a lot of false gospels. There are a lot of things that we have in our system of belief that aren't truly based on God's word. And so when hardships come, when hard times come, so often we, we find those counterfeits are exposed because we find the reality of what God's word really says to us. Perhaps some of you grew up with the counterfeit gospel. Or perhaps are even still hearing a counterfeit gospel that tells you, well, if you have enough faith, everything's going to work out. And then when things don't work out, you wonder, okay, God, what, what happened here? Well, you didn't trust in the true gospel because the gospel doesn't tell us all will go well for us, that we'll never suffer. No, we know the true gospel when we study the true gospel. And there is great danger for us, church, when we neglect to study the true gospel. I believe that there are many in our culture, perhaps some in our church today, some of you sitting here, who are walking around with a counterfeit $100,000 bill in your pocket, thinking you've got the real thing. And the danger is, when it comes to issues of the faith, we're not just talking about being disappointed when we go to the bank. We're talking about the biblical reality that one day you and I will stand before a holy God, and for those who walked around with a counterfeit gospel, who trusted in a, a false gospel, we will find ourselves in the company of those that Jesus said He would look to, who would say, Lord, we did this and we did this and we believe this and we believe this. And He'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a very sobering thought for us who seek to have genuine faith in Christ. And so this morning, I want to simply walk us through this passage with the intention of looking at what does the true gospel look like in hopes that we might be able to identify are we really believing in the gospel that Jesus proclaimed or have we bought into something counterfeit? And to expose that which is counterfeit that we might all together find what the true gospel is and how the only hope, friend, that we have in this world is that true gospel. And so I pray that God will give us eyes to see what he so clearly points out in his word. What the gospel is and what the gospel does. Beginning with the first point that you have there in your notes. The, the true, real, authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. One, one of the ways we know it's real, we know it's true, is because the gospel, the actual gospel, gospel of Jesus Christ, it brings division. Oh, we see that very clearly in this passage where it says... Very clearly, Luke points out, verse 4, there, there's a great division here. This, this city was divided. And so Paul and Barnabas come and they proclaim the gospel. And there's some, on one hand, who believe and respond and repent and have faith. And then there's others over here who, who don't believe. There's division. It's very clear. The question would be then, why that division? I mean, why did some believe? Why did some not believe? Was it because... Paul and Barnabas had a more persuasive argument with some? That they were just kind of on their A game with some of them when they shared? That they were more persuasive so people responded? That's kind of sometimes how we view the gospel, isn't it? Sometimes we don't share it because we say things like, well, you know, I'm just, I don't know that I'm really good at that. Well, the preacher or others, they're much better at that. I'm afraid I might mess something up. 
Or sometimes we look to people and we say, well, that, that, that person, they're just so gifted at doing this. I, I'll just kind of leave that up to them. And yet I think what we see very clearly in the Word is that people's response to the gospel isn't so much a matter of our persuasive words, how good an orator you are. It really comes down to the Spirit's work. I mean, that's what we see here. And notice that it says there in, in verse 1, they, they spoke in such a way that a great number of those Jews and Greeks believed. Now, that, that is not saying they spoke really well. That such a way, I believe, goes back to chapter 13, verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so it is the Spirit working and moving in the disciples who's doing this work. And as the word goes out, then we see there's division. Some believe, some don't very clearly what Jesus had taught the disciples. Now, some of you may remember the parable of the sower. Jesus told a story about a, a farmer who goes out planting seed. And as he's planting the seed, he's just throwing seed out everywhere. He doesn't have all the, the, the modern technology that many of you farmers have today that calculates exactly where that seed needs to go and how much goes here. Now, this, this farmer... The picture Jesus gives is he has just taken seed and he's just throwing that seed everywhere. And he says as he throws it, some of that seed then falls along the path, along the road. Now, I'm not a farmer. I don't even know how well I do at planting a garden in my backyard. But I think I know, for you who are farmers, you probably don't plant a lot of your seed in the middle of the road. <laughs> Why is that? Anybody? It won't grow there. We have a farmer here. The, the seed won't grow in the road. Why? Why won't it grow? Because there's cars and people and stuff and asphalt. That is not a fertile soil for a seed to grow. Even when you think about a path that people walk on, that's not a good place to put seed. Why? Because it's going to be trampled on. It's going to be stepped on. It's never going to get the opportunity to grow. So what is Jesus saying there? He's saying, friends, for some of us, when God's word comes to us, our hearts are as hard as that asphalt in front of the church on the road. But we're not receiving it. We're not hearing it. We are completely shut off to it. For some of you, when I preach the gospel, you hear blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it's the Charlie Brown teacher. And Jesus said that would be true. He said for some, their, their hearts are like the roadside. He said for others, it, it, it's like rocky soil. For others, he says, it's like, it's like thorny ground. He gives that picture of planting seed among the thorns. And then when the thorns start to creep out, well, they just choke out any growth. So Jesus says in the parable of the sower that when we preach the word, we should not expect everyone to respond. In fact, he paints a picture that we really should only expect a minority to respond because out of the four different illustrations he gives, only one of them is good soil. And what Jesus is telling us there is what he repeats throughout the Gospels. Is that when the word goes out, not only will only some receive it, when it goes out, it will cause great division. And that's why he says there in Luke 12, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus says houses will be divided. 
parents against their children, siblings against one another. What will divide them? The gospel will divide them. So how does this apply to us? Well, it helps us to see what a false gospel looks like. But because a false gospel says to us, we can all get along, we can all compromise, we just need to all have unity. Now, now I'm not saying here, and I don't believe the Scripture is saying, that we need to be divisive for the sake of being divisive. That we need to just go out there and, and intentionally be divisive. No, the Scripture says we need to speak the truth in love. And honestly, friends, in the church, we could use a little bit more speaking the truth in love today. But what we do not need, and what a false gospel pushes us towards, is this effort somehow to say, well, well, if this part of God's word offends you, we'll, we'll just kind of pull back there. We don't need to speak so much about that. Well, let's just talk about those things that we can all agree on. That's not what the gospel does. That The gospel very clearly shows us we can't compromise on the truth of God's word, and we need to take a firm stand on the word. And our responsibility as believers is just to put the gospel out there, to sow that seed. And so if you have done that work and you've talked to people about the Lord and the majority have rejected that message, then you're in good company. Because <laughs> that's what Jesus said would happen. And that's exactly what we see happen here with Paul and Barnabas. But it's not just division that the gospel brings. Point two there, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ is often then met with persecution. And so have you noticed that? Have you noticed that people don't seem to be content with merely refusing the message of the gospel? They seem so agitated by it that they want to crush those who believe in it. And what the scripture shows us clearly is that is persecution that will come to us all who take a firm stand on the gospel. And here with Paul and Barnabas we see that that the crowd wants to mistreat them. They want to, to stone them. That, that they want to kill them for the message they're proclaiming. And church, if we, if we think somehow this was just something that happened in the book of Acts, then we're very naive. Because this same militant aggression towards those who take a stand on the gospel happens every day around the world. It happened not too long ago to a couple named Shahzad and Shama, a young couple in Pakistan. They had worked for about 13 years there in essentially a, a very uh, basic brick factory. Uh, the nation of Pakistan is overwhelmingly Muslim. About 95 to 98% of the people are Muslim. That's the state religion, Islam. They were among the very small minority of people who had heard and responded to the gospel and were Christians. So they had already faced great persecution for their faith. That they lived there with their young children at that actual brick factory where they made the bricks. One day in November, the wife Shama was cleaning up. And like many in her community, when you find old papers, you just burn them. And she was illiterate. She had no idea what the papers were especially the papers that she later realized were pages from the Quran, the holy book of Islam. And so when her Muslim neighbors saw her burning pages from the Quran, they did not respond well. They went to neighboring villages and they told them about the Christians who were burning the Quran. And estimates are that about 4,000 of them, 4,000 showed up the next day. And they beat that couple to near death. 
they, they beat them actually until the point they were unconscious, but they didn't want to allow them to be unconscious, so they, they awoke them so that they might feel what it was to be burned alive as they shoved their bodies into these ovens that were there to make bricks. That they died for their faith in Christ. They left behind three young children. The family later told authorities that Shammah, the wife, was in her second trimester of pregnancy. At least you think this only happens in Muslim countries. Let me turn your attention to Kenya, a nation that is overwhelmingly Christian, over 80% of its population. Perhaps you saw in the news what happened the day before Good Friday as four armed militants, Muslims, stormed onto a university campus. They went door to door, dorm to dorm, and they asked the same question of every student. Are you Christian or are you Muslim? And for those who said they were Muslim, they were allowed to escape. For those who said they were Christian, they were executed. 148 of them executed. 80 more injured before the authorities were able to kill these four attackers. You may look around and think, well, well, we're pretty safe here though. (laughs) We are naive to think that. Persecution is coming to us all the more every day. And while we may not be losing our lives yet here in our nation, we are seeing Christians lose things. Many of you would have never imagined in your wildest dream that a Christian family would lose their entire livelihood and their business for simply taking a stand on the gospel. That's happening. Christians are under persecution here. And what that means, friends, is if we believe and trust in the true gospel... We need to be ready to lose things. Friends, job opportunities, everything we own, and maybe like this couple in Pakistan, Zad and Shama, perhaps our own lives. See, that, that, that's what the true gospel brings. It, it brings division and it brings persecution. But in doing that, We also see the grace and the mercy of God in that it it exposes what is not true. It exposes what is counterfeit. And we see that clearly in the remainder of this passage. Point three, then, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It it exposes our idols. Notice here what takes place. Paul and Barnabas are are surrounded by threat of stoning. And so they, they, they leave that area and they go down to Lystra. And as they come to Lystra... We have a familiar scene. We've seen this before in Acts. They come across this man who has not walked since the time he was born. His legs do not work. He's crippled. And so he's in that familiar setting of what we saw back earlier in Acts. Everybody in the community would know that this man didn't just fall and hurt himself. This man doesn't have the ability to walk at all. And the indication we have here in the text is that Paul and Barnabas are able to look to him And see not just his disability, they're able to look and see his faith. And they look at him and they see that that his faith is in Christ. And as they do that, through the work of the Spirit, God does something miraculous here. He heals this man. The man gets up and walks. And then the crowd around them rightly attributes this to some kind of God. They know man didn't do this, and they're right to understand that. But where they err is they attribute it to false gods. They start, as you see in the scripture there, to attribute this work to to Zeus and to Hermes. 
It's like most of the Roman Empire, they believed in the Greek gods. They didn't know the one true God. And so they had temples there to these foreign gods, these false gods. And not only do they attribute that work to them, but then they start to seek to worship Paul and, and worship Barnabas as if they are Zeus and Hermes. And you may read that and think, well, that just seems a little bit odd. <laughs> but when you understand the history a little bit better, it makes a little bit more sense. You see, in this city, there was a lot of legend. And one of the legends that had been passed down, one of the reasons that Lystra was a city that worshipped Zeus and Hermes is because their ancestors had told them that, that, that many generations ago, the legend was that Zeus and Hermes had come down to earth. That they had disguised themselves as just normal men. And they had gone throughout Lystra seeking someone who would be hospitable and give them a place to sleep for the night. And as legend would have it, thousands upon thousands of people refused them. And no one showed them hospitality. Until they came to the, the home of this one poor elderly peasant couple who had barely a shack to live in and this couple welcomed them in and told them we don't have much what we have is yours was legend would have it zeus and hermes then reveal their true identity they turn this shack into a a grand temple and they make this little meek couple into the grand priest and priestess of this temple and then they turned after that, as the legend goes, and they utterly wiped out and destroyed all those other people in their homes who refused them hospitality. That's what these people had been taught growing up. And so when these two men show up on the scene and they do what only God can do, they immediately think, they're back. <laughs> this is Zeus and this is Hermes, and we're not going to make the mistake that our ancestors made. And so they want to worship them. And it would seem at first that Paul and Barnabas don't quite understand what's going on. Luke even tells us that they're, they're speaking uh, the native tongue there. So chances are they don't quite get it. But they start to figure it out there in verse 13 when the priest of Zeus comes walking along with an oxen. And he's going to provide a sacrifice because they're going to worship these guys. Paul and Barnabas immediately, when they see this, they stop them. And they say to him, look, we're just men. In fact, we're here to share with you the message of hope and to turn you away from these foolish tales you've believed in. This, this nonsense about Zeus and Hermes? No, we're here to tell you about the one true living God. And by the way, he's been very patient with you and your ancestors. He's provided rain and crops and food. And he has not left you without a witness. And we are that witness here to tell you about the gospel, the true gospel, not an idol, not a counterfeit gospel, the true gospel that you might believe. And in doing this, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're exposing these, these false idols of these people. Now, you, you may look at this and go, well, I'm not, I'm not sure how that applies to me. <laughs> I'm just going to assume, I didn't look through the parking lot, but I'm just guessing none of you have golden hood ornaments in your, on your car trying to be characters of Zeus or Hermes. <laughs> just guessing nobody here sacrificed an oxen to an altar of Zeus this morning. If you did, we need to have a conversation about that. 
And, and so it's easy for us to read something like this and think, I, okay, that, there's a disc, I don't get that at all. Friends, our idols may not be Zeus and Hermes, but we have our idols nonetheless. There are plenty of counterfeit gods in our culture today. I know a number of you like to have a, a good book or good books to read over the summer. I would commend to you this work. It's not a very long one, but it's, it's very thoughtful. It's a book by Pastor Tim Keller about this very issue. It's called Counterfeit Gods. The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope that Matters. This is what Keller says that helps us to identify these idols in our life today. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to get, that you seek to give to you, what only God can give. See, friends, our, our lives are filled with things that we put there, hoping they will fulfill us, that they will give us love, that they will give us the acceptance that, that, that God has designed us to only receive from Him. And so whether it's a, a relationship you're in, or a job you're in, or something that's even a hobby in your life, we, we are surrounded by things that can easily become our idols. Counterfeit gods. He further says this, a counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. You think about that for a second. Some of you would not be able to leave the parking lot of the church if you lost your phone this morning. (laughs) Not because you couldn't find your car, but because you can't function without it. I mean, you think about how attached we've become to things like phones. I was in a hospital waiting room this week, and and I'm guilty of this as well. So I looked up from my phone to look around that room. And I estimated probably 90% of the people in that room were just doing this. And if you took it away from them, their hands would probably still move that way. Think about how many times that you've heard people say, I don't know how we ever lived without. And you'll start to see some of those counterfeit gods in our life. And some are a lot more serious than, than a piece of technology. Sometimes it's a person, it's a relationship. And that's, what we, that's who we think about more than anything else. It's what we seek fulfillment from more than anything else. And when it's gone... We don't know if we can live. For some of it's some of us it's it's our health. And when we lose it, we just don't think that life's worth living. It, it can be a lot of things for us today. And, and the beauty is here that what the gospel does for us is the more we study God's word and the more we come under the authority of the gospel, the more in God's grace he says to us what Paul and Barnabas said to this city, turn from your false gods and turn to the only hope that we can have. And that's the thing I want to leave you with this morning. Point four, the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, is our only hope. Notice what happens here. Paul makes this bold proclamation along with Barnabas. And we don't 
have the details from Luke on what happens to Barnabas, but we sure have the details on Paul. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium, remember those? Those are the, the unbelievers in these two cities who basically ran Paul and Barnabas out of town. Why? Because they were going to kill them. Well, they're back. And now they've persuaded the crowds, Paul needs to die. And we've talked before about what this looked like in their culture. Stoning to death. Just a, a brutal, brutal way to die. As those crowds would pick up hundreds of stones and rocks and just one after the other after the other. And they throw so many at Paul that they, they assume he's dead. The last time that Luke told us about a stoning, Paul was there too. You remember it was there, it was Stephen. And that time Paul was standing there in authority over Stephen's stoning. But as he's doing that, he's seeing some things happen. And, and he, I think, remembers those things. And I wonder if in this moment, if that's what's going through his head. You remember what happened to Stephen? He is laying there, dying, and he looks up, and he sees, he sees Christ in His glory, standing there, ready to receive Him. And not only does he see it, but he starts to tell other people about it. Do you remember that? I can't help but wonder if Paul, as he's laying there, thinking that his next breath may be his last, if he's not looking up to heaven, waiting to see what Stephen saw. And at least in this moment, heaven's silent in Paul's life. Have you, have you ever been there? Been at that point where you were, you were suffering? And it just seems like rock after rock, stone after stone is just coming, and you're looking to heaven and you're saying, God, please, Stop. Bring me home now. Can, can you just stop it? Because he can. I mean, Paul walks into a town. Here's a guy who's never walked in his life. And in the power of the Spirit, he says, get up and walk. And God miraculously gives this man what he never had. And he jumps up and walks. God can stop a stone in mid-air, and it could drop to the ground, and Paul could stand up and say, you can't come against him. I wonder if that couple in Pakistan, who while illiterate had been taught the Word of God, as they were pushed into that fiery furnace, if in their minds they thought, okay, this has happened before. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And they came out and walked out of it. See, God, God can do that. God can stop the rock in midair. God can restore health. God can rid the body of the marks of a genetic syndrome. And when He doesn't, how do you reconcile that? How, how do you deal with that? See, that's when you'll find out if you believe in a counterfeit God. 
or not. And God will use that in our lives and he'll allow us to suffer in that way so that he might teach us that very thing. I spent way too much time this week in hospitals. And there was not a lot of good news. And I watched people's loved ones as they got bad news. And I watched my loved ones get bad news. I I am so thankful for your prayers for my daughter Caroline. And I cannot thank you enough for the care and the love you show her. And so please don't take this the wrong way. But every time she has a surgery, there's, there's usually two questions we get asked. One is, uh, so is this the last one? Some people ask, how many has she had? And, and I really tried to count for a while. And recently I've just started saying, too many. And I live with the reality that God could heal her at any moment. And he hasn't. He chooses not to. If you have not learned this by now, you will see in your life or in the life of others that suffering in the Christian life is disproportionate. We don't all arrive here and get the same level of suffering. There are some, it seems, where it just keeps coming and it just keeps coming and it just keeps coming. And that's what Paul gets. You remember what was told about Paul right after his conversion. He's blind. He's got to go, I think it was to Ananias to receive his sight. And Remember what Ananias, what God tells him? I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. I want to leave you with, with that, what God showed him and how I believe Paul reconciled these things. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul recounts not only this stoning, but many other things. How did Paul reconcile that the heavens didn't open and Christ didn't call him home in that moment? And the stones kept coming. God tells us right here. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. This is the point where you expect Paul to say, all right, Lord, that's just enough. I've had enough, Lord. I've just had enough. But he keeps going. And toil and hardships through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And I, I appreciate this part in the ministry. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety from all the churches. <laughs> and then he keeps going. And he talks about how he's got this thorn in the flesh and God can take it away, but God hasn't taken it away. And he's essentially just tortured by the enemy. And so you kind of expect Paul at this point to go, Lord, please stop. But this is what he says. See, the heavens didn't open. He didn't see Christ's glory in that moment. But the Lord was not silent to him. 
He told him this. Chapter 12, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, I don't think the world cares a bit when we point to heaven in the end zone and say, praise God. But I think the world takes notice we're in the cancer ward and we praise God. Because when we are weak, when there's nothing left in us, that is when a lost and dying world takes note when we say, but I have strength. From Christ. In Christ. Not because he's promised us. Anything. Related to our health. But because one day. No more. That's what he tells us. And that means friends. That the only thing we can boast in. Is that we have Christ. And if you don't have Christ, then you have nothing. Nothing. And and so, I pray that God's Spirit might persuade you, not me or anybody else, that, that not only is that the only thing worth having, but that is everything that you need, is the gospel of Jesus. And that is not a get out of this world suffering free card. It is disproportionate and you may suffer greatly. But we trust in the one who suffered on our behalf that one day, no more. And one day, we will be in the same place Stephen was, beholding the glory of the Son as He stands there interceding for us to the Father and He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we'll be in a place where there's no more doctors No more surgeries. No more funeral homes. No more suffering. No more prayers for those who do suffer because it's all gone. No more tears. No more death. And that's what Christ gives us. We're going to close today by singing a song and I hope you will think about these words as we sing them. It's one we've sang before. All I have is Christ. I pray that's what you have today. And if you don't, I would invite you to consider turning from your false idols and your counterfeit gods to the gospel of Jesus. And that you'll be reminded, Christian, if you are here this morning and you are suffering, that you may not have relief from it, but you have everything you you need and everything I need in the gospel of Jesus. And so we're going to sing these words together. And and I'll be here up front if if God's leading anyone to, to join the church to confess Christ. If you just... Want to come here and pray? Pray there where you are. Whatever, we invite you to respond during this invitation. But I I hope you'll all take to heart these words as we sing them. So, Matt, if you'll come up and lead us, and let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the proclamation of our lives would be this. That all we have is Christ. And Lord, when the stones come, that we will sing loudly, all I have is Christ. Lord, I pray for those today who are suffering 
who are in pain, who are in turmoil, who, who, Lord, have been in that place where they've just looked to the heavens and said, Lord, no more. Lord, would you encourage them through your word as we sing now. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.